Well, my name is uh, Stephen Ewell. I know many of you, not all of you. Hello there, welcome. Um, a professor up at Southwestern. Everybody heard of Southwestern in Fort Worth? Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, do that full time. And I'm also a preaching pastor at a church revitalization here in town. Who lives in Granbury? One or two. Have you ever heard of Fairview Baptist up on the Weatherford Highway? So we're involved in a revitalization there and certainly appreciate your prayers for that. Great to be with you. Um, I don't know how else to say this. This is daunting. The subjects we have to get through in an hour. Are you up for this? What did you do the last hour? Do you remember? Yeah, what ones? Revelation. I saw something about Revelation. So general and special Revelation. And now we're supposed to attack monergism, synergism. If that doesn't want to make you run for cover, I don't know what will. And union with Christ. So we'll do the best we can. Um, You're thinking exams, right? So I'm going to try to sort of think exams to help you that way. But also at the same time, keep us grounded. Biblical counseling, how you might make use of this stuff especially the doctrine of the union with Christ. Very, very significant, very important. Uh, The place I want to begin, just a brief scripture reading. We'll open in prayer and then we'll dive right into it. You have a handout at the top of it. It should say monergism versus synergism. So you see where you are in your notes. Wonderful. Well, let me read in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray together. Our great God, we do praise you for that work which you have performed in our lives. We thank you firstly that we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. And this came about by his redeeming work, his atoning sacrifice upon Calvary's cross. And we are indeed thankful for this. And we praise you for your work of regeneration, whereby the spirit has caused us to be born again to a living hope, And we now see things that formerly were hidden from us. The scales of our eyes have been removed. Our hearts have been inclined toward you. And now we seek to live in a manner that is pleasing to you. And so for this work of grace, we give you thanks. We praise you for what it reveals concerning your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your power, your goodness. And as we continue to study... May you help us, give us understanding, bless us in our application, and may it be for our good and for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just jump right into it, shall we? Monergism. How many of you had even heard that word before today? A few of you. Monergism. Monergism. Mono, Greek for? Alone. Alone. One. Erge, 
Greek for work. So the work of one alone. Only one. So far so good? Synergism. Sin with. Erg work. So working with. So more than one. So this is the great question concerning the new birth or regeneration. I'm going to have to find a new pen that is horrid. New birth, regeneration. Is it monergistic? The work of one. Stay with me. Or is it? Oh, I just got a whiff of that. Oh, good night. <laughs> or is it sinner? Oh, that's that's rancid. I got to put that away. Or is it synergistic? You're going to go replace that one? Okay. Is it synergistic? The work of more than one. Everyone's still with me. Yeah, that's the one that really, though, is nauseating. Let's try. There we go. We got it. We've got a winner right here. The green is good. Thanks, Lee. We're all set. Don't worry about that. So the new birth. This is the fundamental question. How does it come about? How does it take place? Regeneration. Is it God's work alone? Or do we cooperate with God? Clear on that? Monergistic, synergistic. How are we going to answer this? We are going to go all the way back in time. Here we go. A man by the name of Augustine. So after the apostles, probably, not probably, definitely, without question, the most important figure in the history of the church Augustine. He lived in North Africa, late 300s, 17 years of age, went to study in a place called Carthage. And then he traveled, having completed his studies to Rome, where he worked as an orator and as a tutor from Rome to Milan, back to Rome, where he was converted, and then back to North Africa, where he actually became a bishop. The Bishop of Hippo wrote a mountain of works, lots of sermons and letters that we still have accessible access to in our day, a debate arose in the early 400s. A British monk by the name of Pelagius began to teach that we are actually born blank slates. And therefore, God's grace is something that is granted to us to help us understand him. But when it comes to salvation, yes, we still commit sins in our life. When it comes to salvation, it is a joint effort. That I must do my part, believe in God, I must obey. God does his part, imparting grace, and this brings about salvation. This is synergistic. Augustine nearly fell off his bishop's chair when he found out what Pelagius was teaching. And he actually affirms this is new. No one has taught this to this point in the history of the church. He writes a number of treatises aimed at Pelagius. One of them is called Of Grace and Free Will. And that really is the fundamental question when it comes to monergism, 
synergism. The basic, fundamental question is this. What is free will? All right, have I lost anyone? Just rip it open. Be done with it, man. All right? What is... You're among friends. It's okay. No, don't I. You did not bring enough for everyone, but just have that. What is free will? We need to make three distinctions. Okay? You, now your notes. You're wondering, where's this in the notes? You're now at your notes. Three distinctions, a few little blanks to fill in, and I hope that I'm blocking your view. I hope this makes sense. You stop me. This group is small enough. If something doesn't make sense, just, you just let me know. You ask, okay? And hopefully we will get to union with Christ. We'll see how this goes. There's the first. You need to differentiate between indeterminism. Oh, you're going to learn a bunch of words today. You'll be able to just think later at the dinner table. You'll be able to wow people. Are you deterministic or indeterministic? What is your view on free will? Indeterminism, I define it right there in your notes. It maintains that our free will is free from internal motives and desires. In other words, it is free, completely free, detached from our minds, thoughts, and our heart's affections. That means it possesses arbitrary power. The will. Choice. We don't know why the will chooses what it chooses. Indeterminism. No idea. Free from what the mind thinks, what the heart wants. The will makes choices secret to itself. Arbitrary power. So far, so good. Determinism pushes back and says, no, 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 no. It maintains that our free will isn't free from internal motives and desires. In other words, it isn't free from our mind's thoughts and our heart's affections. That means it does not possess arbitrary power. We do know why it chooses what it chooses. Okay, who have I lost? Kevin? So far, so good. Makes sense. Determinism, indeterminism. And so we are free, according to determinism. We are free in the choices we make. Every choice we make, it's a free choice, free decision. Because we're free from external constraints and compulsions. But our free will does not possess arbitrary power. But follows the dictates of misplaced affections. So think in terms of what we think. The mind. Think in terms of what we want. The affections or desires longings of the heart, what we think is good, what we think is bad, what we hate, what we love. You're getting the idea? What we think, what we want, will determine what we do or what we choose. That is determinism. That this is determined by these. Inseparable. Determinism. In determinism says, no, 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 no. No, we choose. We don't know why we choose what we choose. Absolutely no explanation or reason for it. Complete arbitrary power. That's the first distinction we need to be clear on. Second distinction is this. What we mean by freedom. Very tricky. You hear the word freedom. What does that mean? The will is free. How am I to understand that? We need to acknowledge that there are three different kinds of freedom. There is firstly 
circumstantial freedom, the ability to achieve what we want. That is circumstantial freedom. Some examples of this. Can the prisoner decide to leave jail? Can he? Can he just decide, I'm just going to walk out of jail today? No, he doesn't, what, doesn't he have free will? Doesn't he have free will? He has free will. He does not have circumstantial freedom. His free will is constrained by his circumstances. Make sense? Can the 99-year-old decide to compete at the next Olympics? You really think some 99-year-old is going to make it to the next Olympics? They can decide to, but it's not going to happen. Why? But, oh, can they achieve it? Can they, they decide, they make the decision, but the decision is actually out of their hands. They can say to themselves, I'm going to compete at the next Olympics, but it's gibberish. They can't. So for them to even make that decision is imbecility, right? Because they can do, do not belong, they do not possess what? Circumstantial freedom. Does that make sense? Circumstantial freedom. We are bound by our circumstances. We possess free will. But we cannot always exercise free will because our circumstances dictate otherwise. So we say to our kids, you can be whatever you want to be. Not really. They do not have circumstantial freedom. Circumstances are going to come into play at some point, right? Natural freedom, the ability to choose what we want. Make sense? I'm free to choose whatever I want, the dictates of my heart. Bible uses the verbs to choose, to decide, all the time. Bible uses commands, prohibitions, threats. The Bible insists that we're responsible for our actions. Your will is free. You can choose whatever you want. Freedom to choose. And then thirdly, there is moral freedom. The ability to choose or do what pleases God. So circumstantial freedom, determined by our circumstances. Natural freedom. Yes, to do what I want. Moral freedom, the ability to do what God wants. The ability to do what pleases God. Now, here you have a lie in them. To understand this difference between moral freedom and natural freedom. Here we have this lion in a cage. I heard a preacher use this decades ago. Actually, I read it in a book decades ago. And you imagine that this lion has not eaten for two weeks. All right. When he's turned around, you open the gate and you throw in a big basket full of fruit and vegetables. And then you slam the gate closed. Can the lion eat the fruit and vegetables? Will the lion eat the fruit and vegetables? There's the difference between natural free will and moral free will. The lion can eat. He can choose to eat anytime he wants to. What's the problem? He doesn't want to. Why? Because it's contrary to his nature. You open the gate back up. You throw in a big basket full of uh, raw meat, sausage, venison, beef, whatever you like. That lion smells that, immediately devours it. Why? Because he's a carnivore by nature. How helpful is that? Circumstantial freedom. Our circumstances will dictate the choices we make of necessity. Natural freedom. I have free will. I can choose what I want. Moral freedom is choosing what God wants. 
I am naturally free to choose what God wants, but I will never choose what God wants because I am what by nature? A sinner. I know that I am flesh and nothing good dwells in me. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So circumstantial, natural, moral, a few texts that just kind of point us in that direction. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we need to be very clear. We are free because our choices are our own. That is natural freedom. But our choices aren't free from our darkened mind or hardened heart. In a word, we possess a free will that is in bondage to sin. Did you follow all of that? And so Augustine then, in his debate with Pelagius, and this is a debate that has resurfaced repeatedly throughout the church's history, the fundamental issue fundamental issue as far as Augustine is concerned is the nature of the will that yes we are free natural freedom but our mind is darkened we lost the knowledge of God at the fall the heart is hardened we never want God and no one does good no not one no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless and we are free to choose according to what we think and what we want. But our minds are filled with error. Our hearts are filled with hatred for God. Therefore we will never choose contrary to our nature. The disposition of our hearts. So when, when it comes to salvation and the new birth. What does that mean? God has to do something. That's called the new birth. And that makes the new birth what? Monergistic. We respond. We believe. Right? And we embark on a life of repentance and good works. All of that is beautiful. All of that is wonderful. But we're actually talking about the new birth itself. Regeneration. It is entirely, completely monergistic. Because God is taking sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And he is, in the language of Ephesians 2, causing us to be born again in Christ Jesus. There's a third distinction important in this discussion between natural good, or what is sometimes called civil good, and moral good. So what do we mean by natural good? Simply, that which is good in other people's eyes, in man's eyes. By moral good, we're referring to those things which are good in God's eyes, God's estimation. Now, this is where a lot of people stumble. This is where a lot of people make shipwreck of the faith. Because what the Bible is affirming, for example, in Romans chapter 3, when Paul says, no one does good, no, not one. What's he talking about? Um... I know people who mow their, labor, their neighbor's lawn, right? 
I know people who give all sorts of money to hospitals, cancer society, diabetes society. I know people who volunteer at uh, different centers to help those who are impoverished. I know people who volunteer at school. I know people who do all sorts of stuff that's good. Yes, it is naturally civilly good, but it is not morally good. Because what makes an action morally good is the reason for which it is done. And so what makes an action morally good in the sight of God is when it is done out of what? Love for God and a desire to glorify God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Therefore, even that life of natural good which they might perform is in the language of Isaiah, filthy rags in the sight of God because it's never done for the only motive that God himself will accept, which is love for him. But that makes sense. And so Augustine then, very clear on these three distinctions. The church confessionally throughout its history has been very clear on these distinctions and very clear, therefore, on affirming, however we sort the rest of it out, that when it comes to this new birth, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Therefore, this new birth, regeneration, must be a work of God, of God alone, making it therefore monergistic, as opposed to synergistic. Any questions on that? I was hoping to be done at about 25 minutes. Synergism, monergism, that's pretty good. Any questions? No, that's... I don't believe that. I refuse to believe that. Yes! No. This has nothing to do with sanctification. And you can quote me on that. That the whole question of monergism, synergism, has absolutely nothing to do with the doctrine of sanctification. It has everything to do with the doctrine of regeneration. It's a misnomer to take this debate, monergism and synergism, and apply it to the doctrine of sanctification. The debate and the terms apply historically and theologically exclusively to this, the new birth, regeneration, brought from death to life. Now the question, because it's the question you're going to have on your exams, right? And you can quote me on that if you like, if you're brave enough, and see what the response is. That that is a misnomer. That is a complete misnomer. And I, I actually need to take that up with the powers that be. When it comes to sanctification, the question is different now. We're born again. Spirit dwells in us. And so as we perform good works, as we obey, as we repent, are all of those things simply monergistic? Or are they synergistic, cooperative? It's actually the wrong terms. It's got nothing to do with the debate. The text you want is where we began, Philippians chapter 2. That's what you need, is that text right there. That would be the text you quote. You turn to chapter 2, you'd read verses 12 and 13, write them out. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, who's obeying? We're obeying. 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out. Who's working it out? We are working it out. Your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so, yes, there is cause and effect that now we have been brought to new life. The Spirit of God works in us. God's grace is operative. And we what? Respond. And so we can think of it then in terms of, I don't know if you like use the word cooperation, but in terms of cause and effect, primary causality, efficient causality, God's grace, secondary causality, our will. We're actually working. We're obeying. We're confessing. We're repenting. We are working out what God has worked in. That's the question. In the back. The spirit of grace empowers us. How does he empower us? We're born again. And so by the new birth, that darkened mind, the darkened mind, he has illumined the darkened mind. The hardened affections, he has softened. And he has implanted love for God within us. And now our free will that was formerly bound to a darkened mind and hardened affections is now free to what? Act according to an illumined mind and softened affections. And we are called to obey. That is the fruit of God's grace. It doesn't happen apart from God's grace. You want to make sure you emphasize that. This is God's grace, God's grace alone. God's grace operative in us. But when it comes to sanctification, it doesn't stop there. you got to obey. Get her done, as we like to say. We have to respond. We act. All the commands directed at us. And we are responding now, working out what God has worked in. Well, that sounds like it's all on me. It's not all on us. It is the fruit of what God has done in us. And now the mind being illumined, the heart being softened, the will that was formerly bound to a darkened mind and hardened affections is now free to obey. And we obey in response to what we read in God's word and as a response of the Spirit's work in us. That's how you want to coin the phrase, coin the answer, and understand the doctrine of sanctification. These words are misapplied. Because if you apply the word monergism to sanctification, what does that mean? God does everything. You don't do a thing. You do. You have to obey. And you can obey. Why? Because of God's grace. Right? So that's not infusing any merit into your works. It's simply acknowledge the power of God's grace in you to which you can now respond. This is misapplied to the doctrine of sanctification. It's not the historical debate. And it gets confusing when we use these terms in reference to sanctification. You want to think in terms of causality, primary cause, God's grace in me, the spirit of grace living and abiding in me, illuminating the mind, inclining the heart, implanting love for God. And now me, I am called to act. I am called to work out what God has worked in. Returning to Augustine then, this might prove helpful. In a state of degeneration before the fall 
This was our condition. I cannot not sin. That was us before God saved us. Because our free will was bound to a darkened mind and a hardened heart, even those things which are naturally good, sinful in the sight of God, because never done for the only reason he accepts, which is love for him and a desire for his glory. I cannot not sin pre-fall. Now, by virtue of a monergistic new birth, I can not sin. And I can sin. People need to hear that in a counseling context. They really do. I can not sin as a result of the new birth. And I can sin. Yes. Yeah. So if you're going to answer, when you're answering the question, I would encourage you to say, yes, regeneration, completely monergistic, God raising the dead to life. That's no longer an issue when it comes to sanctification. You're now talking about us working out what God works in. Yes, God's grace operative. Yes, God's grace the primary cause. And yet we are now free not to sin. I can choose not to sin. Glory, perfect conformity to the likeness of Christ. I cannot sin. The three stages, phases, if you like, of the of the believer, pre-conversion, conversion as we now are in this world, and then glorification. Does that make sense? Forget the Latin. I cannot not sin. I can not sin. And I can sin. I cannot sin. This one is very important because you're going to sit in a context, you're going to sit in a context, for example, with a young man, habitual pornography, or someone else dealing with substance abuse, or someone else talking about their worry and anxiety and panic attack, and it's all, I'm a victim of these things, and I can't stop. Right? You're going to hear that. And I heard someone say this a while ago. I found it useful in those situations. A few times I have tried, I've said, look, young man, if I were to give you $10 million, could you stop looking at pornography for a month? It's not about you can or you can't. You don't want to stop looking. Let's call a spade a spade and deal with the real issue. Because people will hide behind this. Oh, I can't. I can't stop. I'm a victim of something stronger than myself. No, it's a question of motivation. You don't want it. Right? And we need to be very clear in a counseling context as to what exactly precisely is going on then. And then probing, why don't you want it? It reveals your sin is even darker than you thought it was. And the stubbornness and the obstinacy before a living God and how you are now sinning willfully against God and his goodness. And that just opens up a whole new paradigm, doesn't it, then, in our discussion. So we need to be pretty clear on that. Oh, I hope I haven't confused you then or worried you when it comes to answering that question. Regeneration. Have at it. Even quote Augustine and wow them on that exam. All right? And then you transition to sanctification. You quote Philippians 2. Causality, God's grace. Secondary cause, man's responsibility. And that is how sanctification is brought about. Good? And if you have any issues, you let me know. <laughs> no, I, I do. the question isn't worded well. And I do need to speak to someone about that. It can be better worded and not as uh, confusing them. All right, union with Christ. Are you ready? 
in 26 minutes. Uh, book recommendation. I wrote a little book on union with Christ. It's through the writings of a man named John Flavel. It's only about 140 pages. It's not a taxing read. If you want to pick something up, I wrote that maybe 13 years ago. So it's not heavy. It is a little historical. So it depends on your interests. If you are looking for the definitive work on union with Christ, Robert Letham has a book. I can't remember the title right now. But if you were to Google Robert Letham Union with Christ, I'm sure you will hit it. But it is a work on systematic theology, right? It's not difficult to grasp, but it is extensive and therefore a little exacting. So it really depends if that sort of thing interests you. It's the one of three big unions that we celebrate as Christians. We celebrate the eternal union, God to us. We celebrate the historical union, or what theologians call the hypostatical union, the incarnation. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And what we're focusing on is this one, God in us. What is sometimes called the mystical union, union with Christ. Here's a good definition from that book on John Flavel. It's in your notes. Union with Christ is an intimate conjunction of believers to Christ by the imparting of his spirit to them whereby they are enabled to believe and live in him. An intimate conjunction coming together of believers, specifically believers, to Christ. How is it brought about? By the Holy Spirit. And what is the fruit or the result? They are enabled to believe and live in him. So this union with Christ is, this is the relationship then between the two questions. It is this, monergistic whereby we are made one with Christ and therefore brought to life. It is God implanting us into Christ by the Holy Spirit, whereby we are enabled to believe and live in Him. Three beautiful analogies in Scripture. I'll just give you these three. Oh, they're there in the notes. They're not even blanks you have to fill in. I'm not going to read the paragraphs under each. You can read these on your own. You have the graft and stock in Romans 6, 5. The head and body in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. The husband and wife in Ephesians 5, 30 through 31. So those are the three principal analogies that Paul grabs, latches onto in order to help us better understand union with Christ. J.I. Packer right at the bottom of page 3 gives us a wonderful description, explanation of the doctrine. The taproot of our entire salvation is our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. In this union, we have a salvation that is not only positional. I want you to remember these three words. Not only positional. Pretty important. His threefold description. So union with Christ has a positional reality. And then he goes on through the cross in the terms just stated and relational. It has a relational reality through our sustained faith communion with our Lord, but it is also transformational. So this is why this doctrine is so important, especially positional 
and transformational, which we want to focus on, especially as they then relate to biblical counseling. Then when we talk about being one with Christ, a positional reality that has implications for the Christian life and therefore the counseling context. Union with Christ, also a transformational reality that changes us. And so that too, extremely significant for spiritual formation, for discipleship, for biblical counseling. So let's unpack these a wee bit. And I'll put it in biblical Pauline language. Three key expressions. The first, as you move to page four, is this. What it means to be baptized into Christ. And so turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. And Paul there states the following, verses 27, 28, and 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, there it is, baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We have Paul stating something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the Spirit. What do we conclude from 1 Corinthians 12:13 and Galatians 3:27? Firstly, Christ is the agent by which this baptism occurs. He does it. He performs this baptism. The agent, the cause, the spirit is the element in which this baptism occurs into points us to the identity in one body as the purpose for which this baptism occurs. A positional, cannot emphasize this enough, a positional, positional, positional reality. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means, let me go back, that Christ has baptized us. That's what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that Christ has baptized us in or with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be a Christian? Christ has baptized us in or with the Holy Spirit into His body, spiritual body, mystical body. That is a positional reality. That is who we are as believers. That is what we are as Christians. That is what Christ has done for us. Literally baptized us with the Spirit into his body, what are the implications we have put on Christ? He is now what? Our chief identity. A policeman puts on his uniform. A nurse puts on her uniform. These uniforms, this clothing identifies who they are and what they do. That's the idea here. Christ has baptized us in the spirit, into his body. Therefore, we have put on Christ. Our chief identity marker now is the Lord Jesus. We are in His body. It means, secondly, we are all one in Him. And it means, thirdly, we are Abraham's offspring. 
Because all that God promised to Abraham, he promised to his seed, singular. His seed is Christ. We are now one with Christ. Therefore, all God promised to Abraham is now ours because we are one with Christ who is the heir of all things. What does that mean for biblical counseling? That reality, positional reality. There's a great question. You'll find it very useful in discipleship and counseling. How do we see ourselves? How do I see myself? How does she see herself? There are essentially only two options on the table. Number one, our chief identity is determined by something about us. My chief identity is determined by my job or vocation. My chief identity is determined by my education where I went to school. My chief identity is determined by my business success or my wealth or my looks or by my spouse or by my children or by my, by my nationality or by my ethnicity. It goes on and on and on and on. My chief identity is something. Okay, if that's the case, what happens when I lose my job? If my job is my chief identity, what happens? My world falls apart. If my kids are my chief identity, what happens when one of them derails? I completely unravel. If my chief identity is my looks, what happens when someone far better looking walks into the room? If my chief identity is my smarts or perceived smarts, what happens when I realize I'm not the smartest person in the room? If my chief identity is my business success, what happens when I meet someone who couldn't care less what I did for a living or how successful I think I am? Do you see how pivotal this is? So many fundamental issues and problems that arise in a biblical counseling context arise directly from this right here. Our chief identity is something other than the Lord Jesus. Our chief identity is determined by who we are in Christ. Everything else is secondary, tertiary. I write there at the bottom of page four, we are to define ourselves vertically. It humbles us and causes us to think of others more highly than ourselves. It strengthens us to endure suffering. It empowers us to serve selflessly and faithfully. It engenders gentleness, meekness, patience, compassion, and kindness. It enables us to extend forgiveness when others have wronged us. We might be rich or poor, sick or healthy. We might be having a good day or a bad day. We might be feeling great or feeling terrible. But according to the doctrine of union with Christ, there is no change in our relationship with God. No alteration, no ebbs nor flows. Because in the doctrine of union with Christ, we have the fulfillment then of this great promise, the promise of promises. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is a positional reality. Make sense? Any questions? And helped you build a little bridge you might want to include as you answer that question as to why it's so important in counseling. Yeah, fire away. Yeah. That's a huge one. You you don't lose it, but you may have someone who is. Um, say, particularly proud of their uh, ethnicity or nationality, they walk into a room and are now counseling with someone who does not share their ethnicity or nationality, that is going to be what? 
a deal breaker. It's going to be huge. It's going to be an insurmountable obstacle. Um, you're going to you're going to have it. You know, for example, it, it's something we wrestle with here in in the southern states in particular, where our our identity as believers is often wrapped up in our nationhood and sense of nationhood. What happens if the states were to disappear tomorrow? What happens to your faith? What happens to Christianity? For some believers, it's inconceivable that the world could continue because their entire identity wrapped up in their nationhood, right? And, and so it, 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 it comes into play more ways than we, would, uh, we could probably ever imagine. It can loom large. Yeah, I guess that is possible as well. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. All sorts of scenarios. Gospel reality too, also positional. I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, it's positional reality. Because I'm one with Him, Christ has baptized me with His Spirit into His body. It means, as far as God is concerned, as God now looks at me because I am one with the Lord Jesus... I can state each and every day, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Five key phrases. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I give you a brief explanatory word of each of those statements in the notes. So beginning with that first one, we were baptized into Christ when we believed in him. The implication is that we're one with Christ. His death is our death, meaning God reckons it to be ours. It is as though we have been crucified in our own persons. Do you ever think of yourself like that? It's a dead man walking. As far as God is concerned, you're dead. You were crucified with Christ upon Calvary's cross in his reckoning. Therefore, it is no longer I who live. Well, I'm living. Here I am. What does this, what does this mean? Well, look at the notes. Paul, Paul no longer identified with Adam, the old man, because he identified with Christ, the new man, the one into whom he is now baptized. We're baptized into his death, meaning the merit of his death is ours. And the penalty of our sin is paid in full. As a result, we no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ. Christ who lives in me. Because we're crucified legally with Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. Sin is no longer the governing principle within us. We live out our new identity in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Although we're united to Christ and belong to the age to come, we still live in the present evil age. Spiritual life, therefore, is one of tension. That great dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit. And we're called to live by faith, submitting to Christ who dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. Who loved me and gave himself for me. The great motivating factor, impetus. It is this love that fuels our faith-filled obedience. What does this mean for biblical counseling? There you go. Memorize this one. Remember this. I promise you, you will pull it out time and time and time again. 
in a discipleship, mentoring, counseling context. This is it, folks. It is not complex. We don't need to muddy the waters. This is the Christian life right here. It is believing. Number one, it is believing that Christ was crucified for me. Two, believing that I have been crucified with Christ. Three, seeing myself hanging on the cross. And four, acting like it. Living accordingly. That's the doctrine of sanctification. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian journey. That is the remedy for so much of what ails us and will come to the surface in a counseling context. Working backwards, you will encounter individuals, men, women, young, old, who are not living according to what? The fact that they are a dead man walking or a dead woman walking. Because working backwards, they do not see themselves as hanging on the cross. They do not fully understand or apply what it means that they have been crucified with Christ and they are not fully weighing what it means that Christ has been crucified for us. So you take that, the key to the Christian life. What does that mean for my sins? Reading in your notes, God says to me, you believe in Christ and you are one with him. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. Act like it. That's the doctrine of sanctification. That's all it is. The doctrine of sanctification is rehearsing our positional reality in Christ Jesus and drawing out the implications now for life. God says to me, you believe in Christ, you are one with him. Therefore, as far as I'm concerned, when he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. Now here's what I'm asking you to do. Just act like it. What does this mean for our struggle with lust, greed, envy, anger, bitterness, impatience, and intolerance? What does it mean for our unguarded words and unfiltered thoughts? We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean for my desires? We live in the age of expressive individualism. We're bombarded with a simple message. Our true self is rooted in our feelings, primarily our sexual desires. Thus, our identity is our sexuality and our highest calling is to express ourselves. But the Bible says what? I'm called to deny self, not indulge self. I'm not the sum total of my fallen sexual desires. The most fundamental question is not what do I feel. The most fundamental question is what does God want? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, not indulge himself, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean for my choices? It means I exchange my will for God's will. How does this apply to the student, the parent, the spouse? How does it apply in the home, the office, the church? How does it shape how I use my money, time, gifts, talents, abilities? How does it determine how I make choices? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What does it mean for my opinions? It reduces everything to one basic issue. Do I love Christ enough to imitate him by thinking of others before I think of myself? What impact will my decision have on him or her? Will this create dissension or confusion or division? What are the consequences? If, I, if everyone did what I did, what would be the repercussions? I would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What does it mean for my relationship with the world? Are you getting the idea of this? Of how, just how important this is? Galatians 2.20 the present age, the world, is characterized by a system of perspectives, expectations, convictions, and actions. 
But we aren't to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We think in a new way. Who am I? What am I doing? What do I want? What do I value? What does this paradigm mean for offenses? How do I react when people disagree with me or mistreat me? When people are selfish, unfair, abrupt, or insensitive? Do I take offense? Do I seek revenge? There's the text again from Philippians 2. The power of Christ crucified ought to shape all of our relationships. What does it mean for comforts? The world tells us that our purpose is to play, collect stuff, and pursue a life of ease and comfort. We're told that personal gratification will make us happy. But Christ says the opposite. Personal sacrifice, not gratification, is the key to happiness. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it mean for afflictions? We follow a crucified Savior by living a crucified life. He suffered humbly, willingly, lovingly. Why? He had God's glory in view. Suffering is not just the way Christ triumphs. It is the way we triumph. When we respond to suffering well, we show the world where we find our true treasure. That is just the proverbial tip of the iceberg, folks, of the implications of our position in Christ by virtue of union with him and the fact that as far as God is concerned, we have been crucified with him. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In a counseling context, I mean, right there, that list It touches on most of the issues that are going to surface. Well, what does that mean for sin? You've been crucified with Christ. You're now a dead man walking. What does that mean for sin? Desires, choices, opinions, our relationship with the world, how we react to offenses, struggle with ease and comfort, afflictions and trials and problems that come our way. Went through it quickly. Any questions? As we near the end of the session, five minutes to go. Does that make sense? Seeing the relationship? All right, then. The third gospel reality conformed to Christ. And here we move from the positional then to the transformational. Now, yes, union with Christ is a positional reality. We're made one with him. That is our identity. But not only that, yes, we've been crucified with him, buried with him. We've risen again to new life in him. That is who we are. But that spirit who now knits us together with Christ is now operative in us. And so union with Christ also brings about a change, transformation. And I think that transformation is summed up beautifully in Galatians 4.19 where Paul says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until what Christ is formed in you. And so we are made one with Christ that we might actually therefore be conformed to Christ. The spirit with whom he baptizes us into his body is now working in and through us, conforming us to his death, whereby we willingly die to sin and temptation. Again, Galatians 2.20 is a great proclamation of that truth. We're conformed to his life, 
that is willing to submit all of life to his will as revealed in his word. We are thirdly conformed to his character and that character as beautifully described them in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit. And we are conformed to his suffering, willing to suffer humbly and joyfully. That is a transformation. That is a change that flows out of union with Christ. Implications for biblical counseling. Let me just give you a few briefly here. It tells us, therefore, that spiritual formation, this transformation to the likeness of Christ, it's all about manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. We're to be conformed to Christ. That beautiful character, that ninefold cluster in Galatians 5. There it is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what we're after so many times in a discipleship mentoring context is the fruit of the Spirit, conformity of Christ, flowing from union with Christ. It means we ought to examine ourselves in light of the fruit of the Spirit. That'll tell us how we're really doing. We ought to examine ourselves in the light of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It means the fruit of the Spirit ultimately is what pushes out the works of the flesh. Because the two cannot abide together. Are you getting these? Those are big blanks you have to fill in there. My apologies. And we see the full and perfect manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in Christ. Conformity to the Lord Jesus. That is the transformational reality of union with Christ. With 30 seconds to spare. Wow. Yeah. Um, there is, but I think we'll just terminate it there. I think those four, there's a fifth one, but those four are the principal ones for the sake of time. Any questions? You get all of that? That's a lot, I know. But I hope at least between some of my ramblings and the notes You've got a pretty good framework then for tackling those questions on the exam and being able to explain what they are, these topics, these motifs, and be able to draw a line between these motifs and demonstrate their importance then to biblical counseling.